you can open up your copy of the Bible to uh, the book of Matthew. We've been in Deuteronomy for months and months, and we finished that at long last, uh, last Sunday, and I actually missed that already. I don't know if you enjoyed it or not, but I enjoyed getting to know Moses better and getting to know God better through him, uh, and I hope that that was a helpful uh, journey, a profitable one uh, for you as it was for me. Um, but uh, this week, we're starting a, a series of messages, uh, five weeks of messages about church planting, which you may know a lot about, you may know nothing about, uh, and so wherever you are, our goal is to help you along in the process and help us along in the process as a church to think, what is that? What's this idea of church planting? Why do we do it? How do we do it? Uh, those types of things. But I wanted to start out with just an overarching statement. It's just four words long, a simple statement that uh, I, I want and the pastors want, and I hope that you would want to, to be something that we learn that gets embedded into our hearts and souls over these next five weeks. And it's a simple idea. It's this, is that healthy churches plant churches. Uh, the healthy churches plant churches. That's something that if a, a gathering of believers is healthy, if it's functioning how we're supposed to, uh, the natural overflow that should be part of our life together is that we plant new churches, that we seek to establish new works of God in new places. Uh, and that's what we want to be impressed upon our hearts this week and then the four that follow. And that's not a new idea for us as a church. I've been part of the church almost 12 years now. Some of you have been longer than me, some shorter. But this idea of planting churches has been been something that's been at the heart of our, our church for a long time. It's not a new concept. I think for an entire generation now, our church has been around 40-some years now, but for an entire generation, we've been a church that has sent people to go plant new churches. Uh, we've sent them, but what it has often been has been overseas, where, and we want to continue to do that. We want to continue to see, we say often, we want to reach the nations and the generations with the gospel of Christ. We want to continue that work of sending men and women, couples and families to the nations with the gospel, and we've done that. Right, like I just thinking of even who I know that we have sent out. We've sent uh, brothers and sisters over the years to Tanzania, to Mexico, to Chad, to Cameroon, to Brazil, to Papua New Guinea, to China, to Laos, and to South Sudan, and probably some others that I'm forgetting. But we have sent people, and then Lord willing, we'll continue to send people to go learn new languages, to go to new places where the gospel either has not gone yet or where the church is not strong yet. Uh, we want to continue to do that, but. We don't want to be a church, and I hope this resonates with your heart, we don't want to be a church that just looks over the heads of the people within our corner of the world, uh, within our region, the people who's, who are, are living here among us. Uh, we don't want to look over their heads to the nations and be blinded to their need, to be blinded to the opportunity, the responsibility, even the need for new works even closer in proximity to us. Places, towns, communities where there may be very little gospel presence or a need for a stronger gospel presence. I would say it this way, we don't want to send our people to South Sudan and forget North Manchester. Right, uh, like we we're, we've been expressing for about a year now, our desire in the years ahead to plant a church in North Manchester uh, within the next few years. And uh, my hope would be, as one of your pastors and just a fellow church member, would be that would just be like the tip of the spear. That there would be in years, decades, generations to come, that God would use our church not just to plant churches in new cultures and new contexts, but into new counties in northern Indiana. Right, not just the nations, um, but the, even the counties of North. Manchester and that's what we want like I think about this for a second when we plant new churches internationally 
Like if, if a church gets established in Laos, for example, uh, we would want, we would teach that church then, go start new churches in the next town over, right? Go to the next province or whatever. Go uh, tell uh, your peers culturally uh, the good news of Jesus. That's what we would want of them. The same should be true of us, right? Like we were a baby church at one point. We were a church plant. And so why would we expect that of international churches and not ourselves, where we, even where we are, become a locally spreading body of believers that plants new churches even where we are? And it's been fun uh, for me, and I hope it'll be encouraging to you to start to imagine what the Lord could do even in our lifetimes. Who knows how long we'll be able to live. But even if we came up with a goal, which I'm not laying this out as a specific goal, um, but even if we had a mod- what I would think of a modest goal of every decade planting a new local church, like in a surrounding county, a surrounding town, And then in those churches that we start, we would embed that idea within them as well, that, okay, you've spread out from here, now within the next decade, you try to start a church a bit further out and and just spread in northern Indiana. By year 10, if we go about that Moscow, we'd have our church and another one, right? Lord willing, in North Manchester, right? Uh, By year 20, if our two churches would each plant a church, then we'd be up to four, Right? By year 30, if those each plant church, we'd be up to eight. By year 40, which would easily be within the lifetime of many of us, there could be 16 churches, including ours, just in northern Indiana uh, that are preaching the gospel, that are evangelizing, that are telling people about Christ, seeing new people come into the kingdom. That could be within our lifetime. Our church could have great, great grandchildren of churches, right? Even just within 40 years, if we uh, plant churches that plant churches, what a legacy that would be. And so uh, our, our hope in this series and in our, our prayer in the years to come would be that we as a local church here could join the work of God of planting churches in our part of the world. But we don't want to do it blindly, right? We don't want to just set out on this endeavor just how we think is best and what we think would be wise. If we have zeal without biblical guidance, we're going to fail. We're going to try to do things, and we may have some fledgling success, but then it's going to fail. And so we want to make sure, even on the front end of this work, as we look to to send Adam and Claire to the pastor's college to receive training to help in leading a church plant in North Manchester, as we think of what that actually looks like, as we think of new towns to go to in time, we want to be guided by the word and what the Lord has said about this endeavor, why we should do it, how we should do it. And so I want to briefly tell you real quick what we're going to do this Sunday and the four weeks ahead to kind of whet your appetite so you can know where we're going and then we'll actually try to accomplish this objective for week number one. But the five things that we're going to try to cover starting today and then in the four weeks that follow about church planting is going to be that we want to first today talk about the motive for church planting. Like, why do we do it? What should be the the main thing that's driving us to be part of this as a church? Uh, The second week, next Sunday, we're going to talk about the message of church planting. So as we go to these new towns, as we go to these new counties, as we go to these new places, what is the message we're bringing? Like, what is the primary thing we're actually bringing to those people of that community. That'll be next week. Uh, The third and fourth week, so a few Sundays from now, we're going to pick up on some of the metaphors we'll even be introduced to today, uh, where Jesus talks about the harvest field and sending out laborers into the harvest. Uh, We're going to, on week three, learn about the laborers in the harvest, uh, like 
that there's actual human beings that are involved in the work of God of seeing souls saved, of seeing churches established. So we're going to talk about why, why that is and what those people should be like. What, what's what's uh, the expectation of the laborers who are part of this. Uh, the fourth week, as part of that metaphor, we're going to talk about who Jesus refers to as the Lord of the harvest. And remember the glorious reality that as we set out to do this human work of, of starting a new church, that it's really a divine work. That if, if we're just spinning our wheels humanly, and there's not a Lord of the harvest underneath that and behind that, but we're not going to bear any fruit at all. So we're going to talk about the Lord of the harvest. And the last week, we're going to start to talk about the method of church planting. So what does it actually look like to start here, to end here? And we'll look at a few texts in the book of Acts to see what does it look like to plant a church, for a local church to plant another church that plants more churches. And so we'll look at the, the motive, the message, the laborers, the Lord and the method. And so today we're going to start with the motive for church planting. We're going to look at a text that is probably familiar to many of you. It's in Matthew chapter 9. We're going to look at the last several verses of that chapter, verses 35 to 38. And we're really going to actually sit in this passage even for a few weeks. We're going to kind of look at a few phrases at a time in it, and then we'll maybe refer to some other texts as we go. But we're going to take a few weeks and just sit in this text and really try to ring it out, see what God would uh, have to teach us through it. Uh, some of you may have heard sermons on this very text. I don't think I've preached one uh, from this text here, but uh, you may have heard a message on this text. And my guess would be, if you have, if you've heard a message on this passage, that it was probably at a missions conference. Uh, that is usually where this text gets brought out and, and preached. Is, uh, there's a preacher who I believe is well-intentioned, uh, and that they're calling, it's typically directed towards young people, but calling young men and women to go to the mission field, to go with the gospel to this harvest field that Jesus is going to talk about, where the harvest is ripe, but the laborers are few, and they're trying to call young people to sacrifice and to go to the nations uh, with the gospel, go to a new culture, uh, go learn their language, go tell them the good news, establish a church. That's when this text is usually brought out. And that's a good desire to see, but I think it's the wrong text to do that. Uh, because what you're going to see, I think, as we read this, is that Jesus, who very clearly at the end of Matthew is going to send his disciples to go to the nations, here in this text, he has a much more closer proximity in view a much more local view, a much uh, nearer field of vision and what he's commanding his disciples to do of, of the towns and the villages, the people that are closer in proximity to them. And so that's part of why we've picked this text to sit on for a few weeks as you, few weeks, as you see Jesus' heart for his people, for even the community and the, the broader region that he grew up in. And so I want to read these verses for you and then we'll walk back through this text and see this idea of the motive behind church planning. What should be a primary driver of us to be part of this work as individuals and as a church? So follow along with me. Uh, Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 to 38. Uh, the, uh, the Holy Spirit inspired Matthew to record this. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And this is the word 
of the Lord. Uh, the, the summary that I would like to give this morning of this text and that I'd like to, to share with us is a very simple one as we think about the motive for church planting is that church planting, church planting efforts must be motivated by compassion for the lost. Uh, that the church planting efforts must be motivated by compassion for the lost. That should be a primary fuel engine driver of any church plant. Uh, we'll look at some rival reasons in a, in a little while that we may have as motivators uh, to do church planting work. But from this text and others, I think we can see that compassion for the lost should be the primary driver. It should be what fuels us, motivates us, whether it's ourselves going or us sending brothers and sisters to go do church planning compassion for the lost should be at the top of the list uh, as a motivator for us. And so I want to just uh, preach this text under two headings. The first one is going to be compassion in the heart of Christ. Uh, I think that's mostly what this text and most on the surface this text is trying to show is compassion in the heart of Christ for the lost. Uh, before we ever see that that should compel his disciples, that that should be something his followers like us have in our hearts, I think we need to see it was in Jesus' heart. Uh, this compassion for the lost, those who did not know his heavenly father, who did not know him. And so the setting of this text that we're going to sit in for a few weeks, I want to just make sure you understand where it's at in the story, what's going on, uh, and then we'll dive more specifically into it. So the setting leading up to this, if you, if you don't know much about the Bible, that is okay. The book of Matthew is one of four books that we have in the Bible that's a record of Jesus' life. Uh, from birth to death to resurrection, it's a record of his life. And most of Matthew, uh, these eyewitness accounts, were those couple years before Jesus was crucified where he's doing ministry, where he's teaching, where he's performing miracles, doing public ministry. And if you just do even a quick scan through the chapters of Matthew's record that have led up to this text today, uh, you can see, especially like chapters 8 and 9, that Jesus is starting to very much impress people. He's starting to, his fame is starting to go, his reputation is starting to go before him. And what he's been doing again and again and again, it's like rapid fire accounts, is he's demonstrating his authority, he's demonstrating his power, he's demonstrating these just supernatural abilities that God, his heavenly father, has given to him. It is an impressive resume <laughs> leading up to this point already. Uh, just in the last two chapters leading up to the end of nine, Jesus has healed numerous people. He's healed a man who is paralyzed and given him the ability to walk. He's, given, he's healed a leper. He's healed a centurion's servant. He's healed a really awful fever and sickness that Peter's mother-in-law had. He, had. he healed a woman who had discharges of blood for years. He healed a man who'd been mute and gave him the ability to speak. So he's, he's doing all these healings. He had calmed a storm uh, that was out of control when he was out on the, the sea with his disciples. He had just spoken and a, a storm calmed immediately. He had exercised demons from people. He had just, in seeing demonically possessed people, had spoken words and made those demons leave them. He had even, in chapter 9, before the text that we read today a little bit earlier, he had raised a dead girl to life. Like, Jesus has been doing all of these things. He's, he's already delivered the Sermon on the Mount, like Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Like, he's been doing all these things. His reputation is growing. But what I appreciate about this paragraph here is that I help, it helps us see, if we would have any doubt about this, it helps us see that even as Jesus' fame is starting to spread, this text helps us to see that Jesus is not some charlatan. 
Like he's not just some showman who is like duping people or, or tricking people or doing magic tricks or things like this or just trying to garner this huge following for himself and just impress people. You see in this text a glimpse of Jesus' heart like of what's actually motivating him to go to these places and to do these things and to heal these people and to proclaim the things that he's proclaiming. You see in this text, you get a little glimpse into the heart of Jesus, into the inner world of Jesus. And I am so grateful for that. So we see in this text what's motivating him. Before we ever think what should motivate us, we see what is motivating him for his ministry. What, what is in his heart that is the fuel that's the drive for him. And I appreciate a few things in this text, especially starting at verse 36. And we're going to sit in this text for weeks, so if we miss certain phrases or words, don't worry, we will come around to them at some point. But I appreciate in verse 36, Matthew starts that sentence by saying, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. And so I love that phrase, just that simple word, that simple idea that Jesus actually saw these people. I I think that means more than just the light coming from their bodies went into his eyeballs and got processed by his brain, but he really saw them, like for who they are. He saw the state of their life, the state of their soul for what it really was. And what Matthew says he saw, what Jesus saw, as verse 36 goes on, is that they were harassed and helpless right? Harassed and helpless. If you have New American Standard, uh, it uh, translates it that they were distressed and downcast. Uh, So harassed, helpless, distressed, downcast. That that first word harassed just means this idea of like they're troubled or bothered by someone. Like whenever Jesus' disciples would come to him or somebody would come to talk to Jesus and, and people would say like don't bother him. That word bother is that word there. Like don't harass him. Like don't, don't bother him. That's, but what Jesus sees as he looks at all these people is that they are being bothered. That they are being harassed. They're being uh, just manipulated and and troubled by the things going on in their life especially even by satan himself whether they realize that or not they're harassed but they're also helpless and what that word means when jesus is said to see that in people's lives of them being helpless is this idea that you see it that word used sometimes of like when something's thrown on the ground or when something's thrown into the sea like it's it's being thrown down like like and so thus the helplessness like i i'm just being controlled and kept down that's what jesus sees in the lives of these fellow israelites that he's interacting with So he sees them. He sees these crowds, but he sees the individuals that comprise them, and he sees they're harassed and helpless. But he doesn't just see that. Verse 36 continues, and what he also sees, this metaphor that seems to be in his heart, at least that Matthew records for him, is that he sees them like sheep without a shepherd. right? That is not speaking, that's meaning Jesus was seeing more than just their physical ailments right? Like when we read, oh, he came uh, proclaiming the gospel and healing every disease and every affliction. Jesus saw those afflictions and those diseases, and I think they broke his heart to see the sufferings of his people. But more than just seeing the presence of pain and that leading to compassion in him, I think what is probably even even stronger drive towards compassion for Jesus wasn't seeing the presence of pain, but was seeing the absence of a shepherd, 
like the lack of an actual savior, someone who could stand up for them, who could uh, stand up before the Lord for them, who could hold down Satan in their lives, who could press back the curse, who could deal with their sin. They lacked a shepherd, and I think that's what broke Christ's heart the most. And that phrase, I find this fascinating, just a little Bible tidbit, but it has relevance because of where we just came from even last week. If you were here last Sunday, we talked about the death of Moses. And uh, we looked at the end of Deuteronomy and what happened when Moses led up to his death. Um, but another place that that lead up to Moses' death is recorded is at the end of the book of Numbers as well. And that phrase, sheep without a shepherd, was something that Moses prayed to God as he was getting ready to die. His prayer to God was, God, please don't leave these Israelites like sheep without a shepherd. That's what Moses prayed. And he's like, please raise up somebody to come behind me who can defend them, who can teach them, who can stand up for them. That was the heart of Moses, was that God's people would always have a shepherd But when Jesus arrives on the scene, it had long since been the case, when Jesus arrives on the scene centuries and centuries later, what he sees is that very reality that Moses dreaded, that there are sheep without a shepherd, that they don't have anyone who is rightly teaching them, who's rightly representing them, who's able to stand up for them and to mediate between them and God. They are shepherdless. And that's what breaks Jesus' heart the most. It's not that they're sick. I think that did break his heart. It's not that they're ailing. I think that did break his heart. But I think it's their shepherdlessness that leads him most to compassion, right? And I find it fascinating that he says, Matthew says that he sees them as sheep without a shepherd. Because think of what these Israelites did have, right? They had synagogues, right? Like Jesus 35 goes into their synagogues. That would have been in our common day, kind of like a church building where the Israelites would gather together to hear the scriptures read, to be taught, to pray. They would do those things together. They had synagogues, right? They had the scriptures, right? They had what we call the Old Testament. They had those texts to be read to them and taught to them. They had synagogues. They had scriptures. They had scribes, like these guys who would teach them. They had people who would even try to teach them the word of God. Yet with all those things, with synagogues and scriptures and scribes, they are still shepherdless, saviorless, right? And that is what breaks Jesus's heart. They are vulnerable, and he knows it, to the dominion of Satan. They're under his rule. They're, they're not able to save themselves. They're not able to free themselves. They have no power to resist sin. They have no ability to be forgiven of their sin. And Jesus's heart is broken by seeing them as sheep without a shepherd. But I appreciate that what he sees leads to what he feels, right he doesn't just see it and like coldly process it like oh this is awful too bad for them like when he sees this when he sees their hurt when he sees their distress when he sees their shepherdlessness it leads to compassion right at least how the ESV translates it it says when he saw the crowds he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless. Like he sees them as such, he sees the the plight that they're in and it leads to compassion. It, It fuels this compassion in his heart and as deep in his inner being he is affected. He is troubled by what he sees going on in their life. And I was reading an article by a man named David Mathis about the compassion of Jesus. And I, I appreciated how he said this. He said, Jesus didn't just perform compassionate acts he felt compassion. 
Like Jesus didn't just do compassionate things coldly, like, oh, these people need help, I'm going to help them, and, and not have a heart behind it. He actually felt compassion for them, like within his soul, within his heart, and that's what led him to action. That's what led him to teach. That's what led him to heal. That's what ultimately led him to suffer for them was this feeling of compassion that he had in his heart for the plight of his people. And that is a wonder of wonders to me that that is what he feels in his heart. Is compassion. Like, because if I was him, I don't know that I would, because think of who he is. That he is God the Son, the one who, through whom God the Father created the universe. And when Adam and Eve sinned against God, when we sin against God, when these very people that he is seeing sinned against God, they were sinning against him. Right? It was an offense against him. They had rebelled against him. They had rejected him. And rightfully, Jesus could have had anger well up in his heart. He could have just led with this feeling of, I desire justice. I desire to bring the hammer down upon these people. But what oozes from the heart of Jesus, what rises in the heart of Jesus, even for people who've offended him, is compassion. Like, that should be wonderful to us, mysterious for us to think about, that he had compassion upon traitors and rebels. Because they're not just sufferers. They are sufferers, but they're sinners too. And Jesus has compassion upon them. And that is a glorious reality for us to sit on as the compassion in the heart of Christ towards sinners. And I would want, if, if I could say this, or have the audacity to say this, that is still the heart of Christ today is that he feels compassion for those who are harassed and helpless and without a shepherd. The, when we read the Gospels, I think sometimes, at least how I grew up, I would think about these as like a biography of how Jesus was. And they are that. Like they are a record of how he lived his life and what he felt, what he taught, what he did. They are also a record of who Jesus continues to be today. Right? When we go through the book of Hebrews starting in several weeks, we're going to see that again and again and again. It's not just that Jesus did stuff for us in the past tense, but he does things for us now. He feels things for us now. He is alive and well, has a heart, has a soul right now. And he still, to this day, 2022, has compassion upon those who are shepherdless, those who are saviorless. And that should be a wonder of wonders, uh, that, that this Savior, this God the Son, still has compassion upon enemies still has compassion upon rebels he doesn't look at the lost people of north manchester or plymouth or south bend or fort wayne or winona lake or warsaw he doesn't look upon the lost with just anger and wrath he he his heart has compassion toward the lost then and today the heart of christ is one of compassion for the lost and that is what led him ultimately i already said this but i'll say it again that ultimately that compassion is what led him not just to heal not just to exercise demons, not just to calm a storm so his disciples' hearts could be calmed. That compassion is what drove him to the cross. Not just to fix people's earthly problems, but he knew the only way I can restore them to God, the only way he could restore you to God or me to God was going to be to suffer, right? Not just to fix our problems, but to suffer the wrath of God for us. He had that level of compassion upon us. He still has that level of compassion upon the lost that he was willing to die for us. He was willing to bear the wrath of God for us. That is a compassion that you cannot fathom and that you cannot just muster up in your heart, but it was in the heart of Christ. This compassion in the heart of Christ for the lost. But as we read this, as Matthew records this for us by the inspiration of Spirit, I don't think what God wants us to do with this text is just think, that is wonderful that Jesus has compassion. He wants us to feel that. 
This isn't just something for us to just observe Jesus like he's out there, but for us to realize this is like instruction for us. This is example setting for us as his disciples of what we should be like. We shouldn't just be like, wow, that's impressive. The compassion of Jesus, I'm so thankful for that, and then be unmoved ourselves. Like when we see this in Jesus, when we see his heart of compassion, it should fuel in our hearts compassion for the lost. It, it should motivate us to live and to feel, to do the same types of work. And I, I say that, I don't just say it in a vacuum, because even in the book of Matthew, where this text appears, the end of chapter 9 is obviously leading into what we call chapter 10. And if you read chapter 10, what Jesus is about to do is send out, if you look at chapter 10, verse 5, he is just about to send out those 12 disciples to go do ministry, right? He, he had, they've seen him, they've seen his heart, they've seen why he's motivated, and he's about to send them out to go do somewhat similar work, to, to do things that seem unfathomable to us, to heal the sick, to raise the dead, to cleanse lepers, but also to proclaim the kingdom of God, which we'll talk about next Sunday. But he, this is like the start, the end of chapter 9, and the chapter 10 is kind of like the start of a commissioning service of Jesus, like of him, uh, of the description of his heart that's then to translate into the hearts and lives and ministries of his disciples, uh, that what he is there to become, right? That what he feels, they are to strive to learn to feel. And so Jesus sends them out, wanting them, I believe, to have, wanting us to have the same compassion that he has. And so that leads me to my second heading, the final one today is, not just that we should see compassion in the heart of Christ, but as we think about church planting and why to do it, I, the second heading I want us to think about today is compassion as the heartbeat of church planting. Uh, that it, it's not just something that was in the heart of Jesus, uh, but that it's something, compassion should be something within our hearts as individuals and as the collective people of God to drive us to church plant, to go evangelize, to seek to sacrifice uh, of resources and friends and people to go to these places to take the good news. We should be driven by compassion as well. So if Christ is moved by compassion, we should be too. Uh, I want to share a few words of application in this way. First, I think we need to learn how to actually see people rightly. Right? It starts by saying that when he saw the crowds, verse 36, when he saw these people, when he saw these communities, when he saw these crowds coming to him, he truly saw them. Like he, he saw more than just the physical things, more than just even what they were telling them. He knew what was going on in their hearts. He knew where they were destined to go. He knew their powerlessness. He saw them the right way. But one thing that I thought about this week, and I would just encourage you to think about, is he was walking around through these cities and villages that probably many of these disciples would have walked through before or at least been around or heard of before. Maybe sometimes he went to their hometowns or things. I don't know. But how many times had these disciples of Jesus walked through those towns and not seen the people the way they should see them? Right? Like they're just going about their life, going to the market, going to the gate, going home, wherever they were headed, going to the fields. They were going all these places, just walking by these people all the time. And I highly doubt that they saw them the same way that Jesus did. Right? They just saw them as these kind of cogs in the wheel, these just human beings who are just going about their day. And they often would not, if they're anything like me, anything like you, they probably did not pause to think about these people as being eternal 
Like these people having souls. These people as someday those who will be raised from the dead to live eternally in some state, either of the favor of God or under the wrath of God. They didn't often think of these people as ones who had internal realities of emotions and difficulties and pains that were going on in their lives. They just see them as other people in the marketplace, other faces in the crowd. But Jesus actually saw these people. He, he saw what many of us miss. And I, I think we should learn to try our best to pray for eyes to see people rightly. To see them more than just a coworker, more than just somebody who's on my team or who lives on my street or who lives down the hall from me. Uh, we need to learn to see people rightly. And it is so easy for us to lose sight of who fellow human beings really are. That they're image bearers of God. That they're under the thumb of Satan if Christ hasn't freed them. But we know this to be true in our heads. Right? We, know, we know it and we really believe it about people who are far away from us. Like when we send Chris and Evie Jones to Papua New Guinea, we believe, we know that the, the human beings that are living in their tribe, that are living there amongst uh, the pay people who've never heard about Christ, we know that they need desperately to hear about Jesus. Uh, we, we think, man, they are destined to hell if they don't hear the good news of Christ. We know that about people who are far away, but there's something about being around the people who are like us in our community who we kind of eat and drink with and we live amongst that we forget that like we're lulled into thinking like uh, I don't even know why we do that we just don't think of people as these eternal spiritual beings we just think of them as peers but if the, uh, the refugees in South Sudan that we just sent a couple to minister to several months ago if they need a shepherd and we know that, those refugees in the camp that they've been mentioning to, we know they need a shepherd. Do we not believe that the farmers of North Manchester need a shepherd also, right? Like that the people who are, are in these towns around us and the counties around us need a savior as badly as third world people in Papua New Guinea who've never heard the word of Christ ever. Like every person needs salvation. So we need to see people rightly, see them how Jesus did. Right? And one thing, this is an aside, but we'll probably bring this back around in the weeks to come too. One thing I also appreciate is that we should learn to see small towns rightly as well. Uh, did you notice that Jesus, 35 starts says, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues. Jesus didn't just make a beeline to the big city of Jerusalem, right? To just go teach there, get, gather a following there. Jesus would go to all these cities, all these villages, all these towns that would have been no-name places to people, been looked down upon. Jesus knew that the people that lived there were valuable in the sight of God. And he went there on purpose, went out of the view of everybody else. And many church planning movements in our day, uh, and I don't look down on them for this, but emphasize going to large cities. Like it's going to be a beachhead to go into a place and then we'll spread out from there. I don't think that's the only way to do the work of God. I think there is something beautiful and valuable to say. We're not just going to the place with the big numbers of people where we can gather a lot of people quickly, but we're going to these forgotten places. You ask most Hoosiers, they won't know where North Manchester is right? But God does. And there's people who live in that town and around that town who are lost and without a shepherd. And if Jesus saw the value of these towns and of these people, we should as well. We don't need to just go to get the glitz of the lights of big cities, but we can go into small places and follow in the footsteps of Christ. So we need to learn to see people, see communities as Jesus saw them. And then just in the pattern of Jesus, when we see them rightly, we need to feel what Jesus felt for them. 
Like we need to learn to feel compassion in our hearts for them because I think so often the plight, the eternal plight of people is just an intellectual fact in our head and not something that we actually feel in our hearts. We, we don't see them as enemies of God. We don't see them in need of forgiveness and grace as we are. I was reading a, a sermon Charles Spurgeon gave about the subject of compassion. He was quoting an old hymn uh, that is still in some hymn books today about compassion. And this one lyric that he quoted, I just wanted to, to quote to us. It was this. It said, Did Christ or sinners weep? And shall our cheeks be dry? Let floods of consecrated grief stream forth from every eye. And I thought that was just a, a beautiful, pointed way to say, man, if, if the heart of Christ is one that has compassion, and even at points in his life where he's weeping over the lost state of those in his own community, how can we look out on our communities and just be tearless and heartless and compassionless? Like We should be moved to have the same compassion, to feel the same heart that Jesus had. And once we see them rightly, and we, we have a heart that feels as we ought uh, for the lost in our communities, that should then compel us to action right Jesus didn't just see this and feel it and then sit on his hands right he saw it he felt it and then he did something right and that sometimes is the missing link for us if you're anything like me is like I see people rightly sometimes and sometimes my heart really is overwhelmed by things but then leading to action to actually go talk to them to actually go to where they are to have the courage to speak to them is where there's a missing link but if we have the compassion of Christ, we see people rightly, we feel rightly, we should move toward action just like Christ did, to go to them, to go to care for them, to go bring the good news of the kingdom of God to them. If the people in these towns and villages had synagogues, they had scriptures, they had scribes, they had all these teachers, but were still saviorless, I'd want you to think about a town like North Manchester. They have church buildings, right? There are Bibles in North Manchester. There are teachers in North Manchester, and I'm not seeking to disparage them, but there are many, many people around North Manchester who, in spite of those things, the presence of church buildings and of Bibles and of teachers, still do not know Christ, and some of them don't even know of him. Like they, they may have some vague idea of who he is, but if these people could be lost that Jesus was looking at, who had all those good gifts of God around them, so too could the people of North Manchester. So are the people of North Manchester, that they have these kind gifts of God, but they need someone to come to them to tell them the good news of Jesus. Church buildings don't save right? Pastors don't save. The gospel is what saves, and that is what we'll talk about next Sunday. We go to these places. We go to these people with the good news of Jesus. That is the action that we should be moved toward by the compassion that's in our heart. But some may look at us at wanting to plant in a place like North Manchester, in a town like, who knows, like Plymouth someday, or Fort Wayne, or places like this. They may think, why would you go there? Like, there's already some semblance of church there, but I would say just as you see in this community, you see in these communities that being religious and being familiar with the Bible don't gain you a shepherd. 
Like they don't gain you a savior. Like if anything, sometimes they lull you to sleep. They dull you to think I'm a Christian and God's people need to lovingly, kindly go to these towns and communities that have this loose, soft shell of Christianity and to proclaim clearly the simple good news of Jesus that you, brother or sister, are a sinner but God loves you and has compassion upon you and has sent his son to die for you. And he's been raised from the dead. And you must, friend, like repent and believe in that good news of Jesus and to shoot straight with people and cut through this thin veneer of Christianity that they have. People can, in these very towns, just like they did here, could grow up blinded and under the thumb of Satan. And there's a cost to us to actually put action in place, to actually take steps of seeking to plant churches, seeking to evangelize. There will be a cost for us as a church to do this. Uh, We have a a team of people that's been assembled and we'll continue to prayerfully add more to that to go and within these next few years be part of a church plant in North Manchester. And though they'll still be part of the kingdom with us and will still get to spend time with us, they in a real sense are going to go from us Right? That is a loss for us in some ways. But that is nothing compared to the pain of loss of sending people and funding people. That pain that is real is nothing, nothing, nothing compared to the gain for the kingdom of God for those people to whom we send them. Right? And we must be willing to do that, to have loss for ourselves as a church of, of finances, if we want to think of it as loss, to have a, a loss, an investment of people. Any pains that we feel to sin, we should uh, outweigh by the gain of the kingdom for those brothers or sisters who will come into the kingdom of God through their work. So we should see, we should feel, we should act just as Christ acted. But I just want to close by just briefly mentioning some thinner, worse reasons that we could be motivated to plant churches. If compassion should be a, if not the primary motivator to plant churches, there's a whole slew of reasons people try to plant churches. Churches try to plant churches that may have some appeal, but really are going to just falter. Uh, Sometimes churches uh, try to plant churches almost like they're franchising a restaurant, right? Like, hey, we like the way that we do stuff, Uh, And this town doesn't have that type of restaurant yet, that type of church yet. Let's go put, let's plop our Culver's, our whatever, down into this community that they don't have yet. If Chick-fil-A wants to do that with a restaurant here, I'd be all for that franchising here. We are not restaurants. Like, we're not serving chicken sandwiches. Like, we are proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. And when we go to communities, we're not just trying to put a CCC uh, twin or, or uh, a, a copy of CCC there. We're not trying to just put a sovereign grace church there. We are trying to see a church started. We're trying to see the work of God started amongst these people. So we're not franchising. We're not competing. We're not that is unfortunately a common motive for church planting is that people will go into towns, go into communities and whether they say it or not their primary way that they seek to grow their church is by what I would call sheep stealing. By like, hey, like we, almost like there's a market of Christians out here and we're going to get our corner of the market. That is a garbage motivation for planting a church. And when we plant churches, I don't want almost anyone to come from other churches. I want it to be people who we go to and we tell the good news and they're baptized into that church or they're, they're a new convert into that church. We don't go to sheep steal. We go to see people brought to the shepherd, not just brought to our version of church. 
right? Uh, other reasons, some seek to plant churches just because they think it's an adventure and they're ambitious, they're entrepreneurial, and it's an exciting thing. Like, oh, this old maintenance mode thing of church doesn't excite me anymore. Let's do a new thing. Let's be on the cusp. That's not a horrible thing, but if that's your reason for planting a church, what are you going to do five years from now? 10 years from now. Like you have to have a compassion for the lost, not just to build something into a sustainable form, but to actually see people brought to Jesus and then cared for till they die. Like we have to have a long-term view, not just this ambition to start, but to, this desire to see people saved. And the last reason I think that just would not suffice and shouldn't be a driver is obligation. I think sometimes we, we read texts in the scriptures about this call to evangelize or to do the work of God and sing new churches starting. We think, I don't really want to do that, but I know I'm supposed to, so I'll give or I'll maybe move and help for a little while and we feel obligated to do it. Obligation is not a good motivator. Jesus didn't just feel obligated to go to these cities and towns, right? He didn't just feel obligated to go to the cross. Like he had compassion that moved him to do these things. He had a heart for these people. And if we just feel coldly obligated to do the things that God's calling us to do as individuals or churches, I think we should pray for him to move upon our hearts to to give me a want to, to give me a desire to do these things because obligation will not sustain you. Like it will fizzle out, but a compassion for the lost will be what sustains you. It's a never-ending fuel, right? It, it doesn't uh, drain out this, this compassion for the lost, but obligation will. The last thing I just want to say before we sing is, I think as we think about having compassion for the lost, I think one of the reasons sometimes we lack compassion for the lost is because we forget that we have been an object of compassion. Like we, we somehow convince ourselves in our minds and our hearts of thinking like the people out there need compassion. Like I know I should feel compassion upon them because they're walking away from the Lord and they're disobedient. And we forget we need the compassion of Jesus too. Like every single one of us is a recipient of the compassion of Christ. None of us are these noble, upright, wonderful people who God just smiles upon in and of ourselves. Like we are pitiful. We're weak and weary. We're disobedient. We're, we're foolish. We're, we're just, I mean, fill in the blank with any negative adjective you want to think of, of how we left to ourselves relate to God. But Jesus has had compassion upon us. And if you are a Christian, Jesus has had compassion upon you. And if you are struggling to have compassion for the lost, if you're struggling to get your heart motivated to, to, as a church, send people to go to the lost for the gospel, pray that God would help you remember the compassion he has shown to you. Right? Pray and then go to texts about the cross. Go to texts like what we read about today and see God's heart for you demonstrated at the cross, the compassion that he saw you, that he didn't just look upon you and think, she's good. He's good, but that he looked upon you with pity, with compassion, and that led him to the cross. And go there if you're lacking compassion for others, because at the cross you'll see his compassion for you, and that'll be what will fuel you, that will be what fuels us to have compassion for the lost as we seek to plant churches. Amen? I'm gonna invite you to stand. I'm gonna pray for us. We're gonna sing a closing song, and I'll leave you with the word of benediction. Father in heaven, uh, what a moving text what a moving statement that your son Jesus looked upon the crowds who were hurting who who needed healing physically and he had unrivaled compassion upon them that he saw them that he sees us in ways that the world does not 
that he sees truly into our soul, that he knows the depths of who we are, both the good and the bad, that he loves us in spite of it, that he, that he serves us in spite of it, even to the point of death. God, I pray that we would be moved by his compassion and by your compassion for us through him. I pray that we would know uh, in our hearts uh, that reality and then that we would be distributors of that compassion, that we would see people rightly, that we would feel rightly about the lost, that we would gladly, excitedly go to them with the good news of Jesus that's been brought to us. So even as we sing now, we pray that we, you would be honored, that we would be moved. And we pray this in the name of Jesus.